Fuck pain. Fuck heartbreak. I'm still in love with life. From the multicultural headquarters of the future capital of the free-thinking states of America known as Los Angeles, this is the Drunken Dows Podcast. Tonight, it's interview time again. As author and host of the Astro Hustle Podcast, Corey Allen joins us to chat about his newly available book, Now is the Way, as he helps us all towards modern mindfulness, as well as choosing how to show up in your own life, Battling distractions, dealing with each other as human beings, controlling technology, and the incredible benefit of meditation. Here we go. And now, asking you all to spread the words that corporations are not persons, I'm Rich Evers. And my partner in crime, the savage philosopher and middle finger of the gods, Daniele Bolelli. As we invite you to lower the lights, batten down the hatches, and prepare to open your mind for the Drunken Dows podcast begins now. Welcome back, everybody, to another fine episode of the Drunken Dows podcast, episode 167, the final episode of year seven, believe it or not. That's amazing. But here we are. So we'll get directly to our interview after a very quick mention of the kind folks that help keep us on the internet, starting with, of course, Onnit, O-N-N-I-T.com, a sponsor from almost the very beginning, offering you so many great products from the ever-popular Alpha Brain, which Bellelli just loves and I do enjoy myself, the amazing Steel Mace, Kettlebells, Power Foods, and the new fave, Medicine Ball Meets Frisbee, the Steel Bells, which are sadly out of stock right now, but they say they're going to be back soon, so definitely check out the website. All this stuff to help you towards the goal of human optimization. Do us a favor, have a look at the website, the wide variety of awesome goodies that they have available, and you can get a discount by going to onnit.com forward slash Dallas. Check them out. Which brings us to SureDesign, SureDesignTshirts.com, another longtime sponsor. Like I said, please go to their website. They have an amazing variety of men's and women's apparel, tons of colors of different shirts and dresses, super cool designs, owls to octopi. Yin-yangs to alms, Ganeshas to Buddhas. I mean, so much sweet stuff to choose from. Go have a peek. You'll surely find something right for you or, or for a friend. And it's all priced really well. Super soft shirts, super soft cloth, nicely done. They're the folks that make our own awesome Drunken Styles t-shirts. So, SureDesignT-shirt.com. Give them a look. Now, another way to help us out is to donate directly at thedrunkentowers.com. There's a donate button there. You can just toss us a couple of bucks to get us a drink or something. Or, even niftier, if you seem to be a little short on cash, but you happen to be going to Amazon, click on the Amazon link on our thedrunkentowers.com website. There's a link in our episode notes. Shop like you always do through that portal. And a small portion of your purchase will be passed on to your friends of the Drunken Towers podcast. How about that? Costing you nothing additional, but surely ensuring that Jeff Bezos stays bald. Maybe I should have said that. Anyway, grasslandbeef.com, beef, pork, bison, duck, seafood, all kinds of stuff. All the animals are raised on sustainable family farms in Missouri and Illinois. No antibiotics, no hormones. It's great stuff. We've sampled quite a bit of it. Next up for me is their bison patties, which I can't wait for, but it's great stuff. Grasslandbeef.com. And to wrap it up, nevertapgear.com. 
They have Savannah's super cool Tomogozen rash guard, complete with severed head, as well as their never tap knee guard to help protect you from injury when you roll it. And that's nevertapgear.com. So there we go. Have it. Check out all the episode notes at thedrunkendaos.com for discount codes and links to our sponsors. And we'll be back with a Rich and Bolelli episode to get year eight started off right mid-October. So until then, enjoy our interview with Corey Allen and uh, check out his book, Now is the Way. Mr. Corey Allen, what is up, my good man? <laughs> Nothing much, just uh, being a guy right now and in, trapped inside of a body, wandering around a weird planet. How's that experience going? It, it gets sweeter by the day. I like that. Yeah. Oh. I, yeah. I, I can dig that. And I hear that in this uh, alien experiment that you are carrying out in this incarnation on Earth, you are also decided to be a author of a book coming out right now. What's going on with that? That's right. So well, basically what was happening is that I feel like as I'm getting older, like my head is getting bigger, like the top of my head's getting bigger. <laughs> like physically, I say. <laughs> yeah, like physically. Cone head is beginning no, my, to happen. Yeah. Okay. My my e my ego, fortunately, is has become smashed and more and more into tinier pieces as I've got older. Okay. Um, uh, but my yeah, I feel like my head's getting bigger, and so I need to get some of the contents of it out. And I thought maybe if I kind of like I lance it like it's a boil or something like that, and I squirt some of the words that are in my head out into a book that it'll shrink, and then I'll be able to share those words with other people and it'll be good for everybody Nietzsche had an interesting image that didn't quite involve exploding boils but uh, <laughs> he was using like a cloud full of rain and that you feel this need to kind of let some stuff go and so the, he was describing like how grateful a cloud was for the earth where it could just let go of all this rain so that it could feel fresh again so I think that's where we're going with that. Yeah, I think so. I think so. So, uh, yeah. And essentially the deal with the book is that um, it is a, it's called Now is the Way. Uh, and you were oh so kind and generous as to write a, a sweet blurb for it, which thank you for that. I very much appreciate it. Anytime. And um, Aubrey Marcus, our mutual friend uh, wrote the Ford, and essentially what it is, it is, it is a uh, modern approach to mindfulness, you know, so a lot of the great now books, the great uh, books that cover things like mindfulness and meditation, you know, they were written 50 years ago. And so it is taking you know, my experiences and you know, my life in walking the internal path and trying to deconstruct my suffering and understand myself and be less of a uh, angry, frustrated, uh, existentially, uh, terrified human being into figuring out how to some, somehow get on the other side of that and become, uh, all the ideas, the concepts of, you know, things I discovered while reading Eastern philosophy and Western philosophy, but particularly Eastern, these ideas of like, how can you 
let go and, and work through this pain and the heaviness feeling? How can you wake up to the abundance of everything that surrounds us and actually sink deeper down into the experience of life and really feel it and really be there with it and, and enjoy this crazy, you know, we're joking about the alien experiment earlier. Like just the fact that we exist is preposterous, you know, I mean, Uh just like the chance of us even being able to have a conversation, much less be aware of the fact we're having a conversation is so abstract, right? It's so ridiculous that, um, that I, you, I, it should be appreciated, right? We're lucky. We're all, no matter how much your life sucks, and I know you can like speak to having some of those traumatic experiences that few people fortunately tend to experience. Like, no matter how much it sucks, man, it's still having the switch turned on is an incredible thing, right? And so I think I've spent a lot of my life trying to figure out how can I just get deeper and deeper into that? And whenever I started talking about a lot of the, you know, my shitty experiences I had growing up and just things that shaped my, um, some of the symptoms I described earlier, I, you know, studied a bunch of things, figured them out, so forth. And then, uh, you know, fast forward a few decades on my podcast, whenever I started talking about those experiences I had, I started getting feedback from listeners saying like, hey, I experienced that thing too, or I'm going through that right now. And you sharing your uh, encounter with that challenge and then how you worked through it was like this key turning in my mind that helped me unlock my suffering and, and open the wonder and the curiosity realm and and step through the door into this other way of experiencing the world. And that was really like, to me, that was this kind of light bulb moment. Where I thought, okay, one, these are not like me experiences. Life is tough and we all face these challenges. We all face you know, the fear of oblivion or experiences of trauma or experiences of anxiety or feeling incompatible with the rest of society. These are just human things. And then the other thing was like, all right, for whatever reason, the perspective and the way that I've approached these within myself is really helpful for these strangers, essentially. And I thought, okay, I'm going to write this, like this map, you know, I share this map that I've experienced to help cut down time for other people to get on the other side of the shit parts of life. How did you, like, what was the journey? How did you end up, like, I mean, I know you teach meditation. It's something you've been doing for a while and all of that. How did, like, how did you go from point A, Corey, at 12 years old to teaching meditation and writing books about all these and so on? Yeah, it's funny that you and I have known each other for a a while now, I mean, I don't know, five, six years, and we've never talked about it. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, essentially, like, you know, growing up, you know, my, my had a very um, destructive family environment, uh, chaotic environment, experienced, uh, grew up amongst conditional love and Mm -hmm. being parented through manipulation and emotional manipulation and fear and threats, as opposed to uh, you know, unconditional love and support and those things. And being in that environment made me one, um, be very cognizant of the fact that reality is not what's necessarily being presented or told to you. It made me realize early on, you know, I couldn't put the words or hadn't read the philosophy yet to it, but I realized like, Oh, wait a second. There's like multiple shades of this thing going on and what each of us are experiencing, uh, are not the objective truth, much less, you know, um, really 
anything uh, to always be believed, right? So that was one element of it. Um, and then just feeling this intense anxiety and, and depression and all those things because of those surroundings, um, I basically overheard someone uh, randomly one time whenever I was a, a kid or you're an early teenager you say the word Nietzsche. They were talking about him. Mm-hmm. And it was actually one of those those silly questions I heard someone ask, like, if you could sit down to dinner with four people living or dead, who would they be? And the person, I remember clearly, two of the people, one of them said Jesus. They said Jesus, Nietzsche, and then two other people, which that's an interesting table, right? Yeah. So I like to think it was maybe it's like my a future self went back into the past and dropped those names to create this like combustive way of thinking for me, for the right. younger me. Um, but anyway, man, so a little while after that, I was just randomly walking through a bookstore and I saw the name Nishi on the back of a, a spine. It was like the portable Nishi or something mm-hmm. like that. And I remember going, oh, there's that weird name. And like that name just looks cool. It looks like a stick of dynamite, you know, just like the words within the books. And right. I went over and picked it up and I was like, <clears throat> I was started reading it. And that was the first time, you know, as a teenager that I thought, oh, like, you know, not, to set this up, like neither of my parents were readers, no one in my entire life system, not at school, not a distant cousin, no one ever was into philosophy, into psychology, even was into Eastern thought or meditation, like nothing. They never even read. Mm-hmm. Um, I was literally just on an island of the self here. So I started reading Nietzsche and I was like, holy shit, this is how I think. This is like the mathematics of how concepts in my mind work and show up in the world and it, like it, it totally blew me away and it, i turned honestly i turned niche into like a father uh, you know hypothetical father sure. god figure for, and became obsessed with him and uh i just really got into western philosophy i became completely obsessed with that and that was you know out of that, that ocd of that was partially a way to put on blinders to block myself from what i was experiencing in the world but also mm-hmm. because i was just so intensely fascinated and felt connected to something finally. Uh, and then after I read that, you know, and, and getting onto things like Schopenhauer or some of the hippie philosophers that kind of are like a bridge, um, I started, uh, you know, like Terrence McKenna or Robert Anton Wilson or someone like that. I started reading Eastern philosophy. And then once I started reading that, I was like, oh, holy shit, this is not only how I think, but it's also what I think. It's mm-hmm. where I'm trying to go. And you know, this was the 90s. So it was sort of interesting is that that was pre-internet. You couldn't just go ask Google or watch a YouTube video on this stuff. It was all books. And I just read like insane amount of books, like hours and hours every day for at least a decade, you know, right. um, it became pretty insatiable. And so from that, that was how I started learning how to meditate out of books. But I read all these different approaches and different lineages and, and ways and whatever. And because of I'm sure it's clear from what I described about my childhood, like um, I have a real issue with authority or um, s- believing like w- that even a school of thought is even a worthwhile thing. I, mm-hmm. I, I still think this like by defining a school of thinking, you're inherently limiting it by calling it what it is. You're, you know, you're saying, well, here's what it can't be. And that just saying it's like Christianity or something like that. Just agreeing. Okay. Okay. This is a closed system. We're done here. No more, no refinement needed. It's just it, it, that very logic in itself exposes the fallacy of those closed systems and ways of thinking. That's uh, um, very, very Bruce Lee of you. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Very much like water um, in this in that way of thinking. And so um, I just tried all these different ways of meditating. I got into like mysticism, you know, got into Crowley, got into Sufi uh, type stuff and just tried everything all the while was taking psychedelics. And uh, I figured out that like inside my body, no matter, I had kind of a Viktor Frankl moment, like no matter what was happening outside of my body in the world, I recognized that my inner life was mine and that what I could do is I could meditate. I could begin to walk that internal path, understand myself. And as I began to study consciousness and practice meditation uh, in that way, I began to observe the change in myself. I started realizing, like, wow, I'm not the same person I was three months ago. I've, I've let go of shit. I think different. I'm thinking more clearly. I understand myself more. And whenever I figured out that that was possible, it was just like off to the races. And I've honestly never, I've never stopped ever since then. Right. That's quite a trip. That's interesting because, yeah, it's uh, often you hear meditation, you are thinking, you know, the Indian guru teach you the way you have the exact opposite approach, which is very much like a Ronin self-made approach of just going out and trying to gather as many sources of knowledge out there without really depending on one particular method or just one particular way or one particular person either. Mm -hmm. So that's totally. sort of the opposite of, uh, of what you typically hear from, uh, you know, when people are talking about stuff like this. So that's yeah. kind of cool in itself. That's an interesting, and you know, I'm sure there are people who, I don't know, did you ever have people who kind of give you shit about it? Sort of like, Hey, you don't come from any established lineage of, uh, how it's supposed to be done. There's uh, who's your, you know, have you ever run into that much or not a whole lot? Um, whenever I was younger, like, um, and I, I didn't have the kind of the, the voice of God that's come <laughs> people, I, I think people don't argue with me about it now because I have like a fatherly right. <laughs> sound fatherly or authoritative. Yeah. Um, but whenever I was younger, yeah, man, like people would, would be like, well, you need to, you have to like choose, you know, Vipassana meditation or this or this or this school or, you know, Zen or, uh, you know, um, an Indian approach or whatever it might be. And I was just like, why? Like, that seems ridiculous. That's like saying you have to eat one type of food. It's like, yeah, there's a lot of different types of food that will give you nutrition. And actually, if you mix them together in the right way, you can create new flavors. Right. You know? And that's how I think about philosophy and the internal philosophies. Mm-hmm. Well, that's no, I mean, that makes sense to me. So it's, it's like, that's why, you know, I'm asking the question, not because I think uh, that's actually a great way of thinking, purely because uh, it's it's kind of what you expect it's sort of what you hear from a lot of people so i was just wondering in that regard uh, you know how much of that you had to battle through in order to sort of establish your own identity saying no you know it's like this way works for me end of story i don't yeah. need any stamp of approval i don't need any piece of paper from so and so it either works or it doesn't. And that's just kind of as simple as it is. It either brings you relief and makes you feel happier or it doesn't. It either makes you more present or it doesn't, you know? Yeah, that's it, man. I had a, a very, very well-known uh, fella I was talking to one time. Um, and we were talking, I asked him if he meditated and he was like, oh yeah, I got certified. I went to India and got certified it's like that is not a thing like a certification of, <laughs> of meditation sounds like the most ridiculous fucking thing to me i could imagine right you know what i mean yeah 
No, I agree. I agree. Sort of the EQ Sojun burning his uh, certificate of enlightenment thing. Right. Like, and, you know, the difference is, in his case, he had to go through that process because there was no one, nothing else. You know, it was the 1400s in Japan. There is no, you know, you are talking about this was before internet. Well, in his case, probably didn't really have access to a whole lot of books or anything in that regard. You know, the only way to get it is through a human being. Yeah. But, you know, despite that, that was his experience, his experience was also like, come on, screw this, you know, let's be real about it. Like certificate of enlightenment, stamp of approval on my inner consciousness. <laughs> Fuck it, yeah. you know? Exactly. It's ridiculous. Well, I think that's one of the reasons why you and I click, and particularly, you know, under the circumstances in which we met initially, we was like, oh, hey, another, like a life raft of, of, a no bullshit, you know, a life raft of like authenticity and realness because yeah, man, like anytime that you even, I think that any, anyone proclaims that they have figured out the thing, you know, if they're like, Oh, I you know this is how you achieve this enlightenment or this is the path to this thing. It's like, no, by saying that you've achieved it, you immediately have told me that you don't even really understand the path. <laughs> right. Of course. <laughs> no, that's, uh, that's dope. I mean, that's one of the things. That's why I have a similar relationship as you do with uh, authority figures. Not out of some teenage desire to rebel and say, fuck you all. But the point being is that authority, if, if truly somebody is deserving to have um, to be listened to, then they are not going to put themselves up on a pedestal saying, uh, hey, I'm a figure of authority. You need to listen to me because I know my shit. It's going to happen because what you say is smart, because what you say makes people go, damn, you got something going on there. You know, I remember like a few times when I was teaching college courses with, I've had a few times the experience of teaching a course that was split between multiple professors and so on the first day, everyone is there, and then each one takes a few weeks out of the course, right? And I remember listening to people who, on day one, they would introduce themselves to the students saying, my name is Doctor, and right there I was like, okay, we're done. You know, <laughs> My name is Doctor. War number four, for me, your credibility is already gone. Because yep. it's like the fact that you feel the need to put this, um, the title, the, hey, I'm an authority figure up front, tells me a lot about your insecurities, how badly and desperately you crave to attention and to be listened to, because probably you don't have the natural charisma to call for attention. You don't have that thing that make people go, hey, I want to listen to this person. And that's why you have to establish, you need to listen to me because look at all the degrees I have or look at what I have that. And to me, that's sad for the most part. I mean, I mm -hmm. get it. You know, people will use it because we live in a world that recognizes that stuff and you need that quick, uh, hey, what's your title? Do you have the credentials to do that and all that? So I understand getting that stuff because sometimes you need it, right? But there's yeah. a difference between getting it and flaunting it and kind of using it as a badge of honor and carrying it on as your shield. It's like, come on, man, just got a life already. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. It's like if you're at a dinner party and someone says, oh, hi, I'm doctor, whatever. It's like, man, this is horrible because what they're doing by that, not only as you, as you said, is, you know, 
showing you, I suppose, their insecurity, but it's it also by doing that and identifying yourself with some, uh, you know, some letters before or after your name, you're also insinuating that people who don't have that are less than. Of course. And so you, <clears throat> you know nothing about this stranger. And then you say, hey, you know, I'm special and you're not. How's it going? And it's like, all right, well, that's unfortunate. Like this is, I just kind of know uh, where this is going to, how this is going to play out. You know, and that's what, one of the things that to me, because I have so much respect for just human beings I, and, and I, one of the things to me is very important is like the integrity of, because my career now is talking about um, transient inner life shit that's not tangible. Sure. It's so important to me to never uh, tell people like something is a certain way or, or this or that or ever come off like being like that. Um, and so as you, you know, as the years have progressed the last few years, I've really tried to become more uh, I've thought a lot about how to make knowledge and information and experience as democratic as possible, because like I'm a fucking idiot, you know, like let's start like I yeah. say I'm an autodidact and I say that not to. Uh, as, as some like badge of honor, like, oh, I taught myself all this stuff. It's like, I'm not, I'm trying to take responsibility for my own idi idiocy and my own blind spots. <laughs> but uh -huh. like, I don't know. I went out and tried to figure all this stuff out. This all worked for me. It seems like a solid system, you know, but I'm sure I'm missing a lot of stuff. I can't remember all of the, the like esoteric, uh, you know, Zoshan Buddhist na God names and stuff like that. Um, and so I, th I think it's really important, like, to frame the transference of information in as democratic as a way as possible. And you can do that and still, like, share valuable shit. And the way I, I've kind of described it is, like, if we're – it's like the campfire thing. If you're walking through the jungle, we're hunter-gatherer, you know, type of people. We're walking through the jungle – some jaguar jumps out, tries to bite you on the neck and you fight it off and kill it. Then later at night, whenever you're sitting around the campfire eating that jaguar you killed with your, the other people in your tribe, you say, hey, guys, by the way, FYI, as I was walking through the jungle, I heard this growling sound. That sound was what I heard right before this fucker tried to kill me. So uh -huh. if you hear that, heads up and like they'll say, oh, thank you. And so, like, you're, you know, in that process, you're not saying I'm better than you because I know this. You're saying, like, hey, this kept me from dying. I hope this does the same for you. And that's it, you know? Mm -hmm. No, that makes sense. That makes complete sense. And it's... Uh... That's what it is. It's like stuff either works or it doesn't. All the other theory, title, whatever the hell, that's a distraction. That's uh, that's an ego trip, which is in theory should be the exact opposite of the whole emphasis of the stuff you are talking about, you know? There's, totally. um, there's a same story that sometimes I've, I've used a few times on the podcast before because it conveys this point of this one guy who goes to the Zen temple and arrive and give a handout his business card to the temple attendant so that they can bring him to the bring the car to the Zen master so the Zen master then will accept and have a meeting with this guy and um, the guy doing this is the governor of Kyoto and so the card says whatever his name is let's use I can't remember, so I'll use a MMA name, Kazushi Sakuraba, <laughs> governor of Kyoto, right? And the attendant bring the car to the Zen master, and the master is like, nah, I don't want to see him. And he's like, he's the governor, we get out, I don't want to see him. 
And so the attendant goes back to the governor and he's all apologetic and he's like, you know, my master is a little eccentric sometime. I'm sorry. I don't know what happened, but, and the governor goes, oh, I got it. I got it. It was my mistake. You know, you don't need to apologize. I screwed up. So he gets his card and he scratches the words governor of Kyoto. And now he's like, can you please bring the card back and, and try again? So the attendant goes and the Zen master get the card and goes, oh, it's Kazushi Sakuraba. Sure, bring him in by all means. <laughs> I love it. You know, the idea being when we are dealing with each other as human beings, sure, not a problem. When we're dealing with each other, hiding behind social roles, status, or all that kind of stuff, fuck you, get out of here. Yeah, yeah, man, absolutely. I mean, that's one of the things as far as like, I, I think you've shared the same approach to but the work that either of us have, have been doing over the last handful of years. And that's like, I've never tried to position myself as like a personality. I honestly feel like, and I guess it's just what has worked for me as well, but it's also instinctually what I'm drawn to do is like, I just do the best I can with stuff. And I'm like, I'm just going to be try and be a white hot flame in the corner mm -hmm. and hopefully it'll give off enough light that if it's useful to people, they'll notice it because you know, that's how it works. Like, as you said, if you, offer something valuable, then it will be noticed um, right. as opposed to like creating this weird, twisted, fake identity for yourself that you end up just dumping a bunch of money into and manipulating so that you can get this idea of yourself out in the world. Um, cause that's, that's like a, that's the abyss, man. That's a, a terrifying hall of mirrors with gnashing teeth around every corner. That's like a hellscape that, uh, I wouldn't dare ever enter. <laughs> right. Absolutely. The, um, let's, uh, let me ask you something then. The stuff uh, for people who, well, I assume that's everybody because your book just came out. For people who haven't checked out your book yet, what do you do in this book? What is that, you know, how do you structure it? What, mm, how do you address this issue of like trying to figure out, I mean, something as you put it, something as intangible as inner states as, uh, you know, being able to gain a certain state of consciousness, being able to gain a certain degree of presence in the presence, in the present moment, so to speak, uh, learning how to meditate. What's the structure of the book? How do you go about the whole thing? Yeah. So first off, in the very introduction to it, I say I make a lot of what we've just been talking about clear up front and just say, hey, you know, this is different. Uh, I'm approaching this like we are friends having a conversation, mm -hmm. not like we are, you know, this isn't like a teaching. You know, this is like we're just it's like everyone relax. Let's lower the stakes and let's just talk about this shit because it's been useful to me. Right. Um, so from there, it's broken down into four sections, which mm -hmm. are now there here and how so uh now really describes the present moment because it's one of those things that it's so uh has such a flexible and often uh blurry definition that i i describe it with a lot of clarity describe a existential experience of it what it feels like 
to have your awareness, you know, the wattage of your awareness increase in the connection with, you know, the, the earth and your surroundings and just essentially your biological nature deepen and connect more to uh, the natural world. Or just really describe what, that, what's that is, what that's like and um, how, how you can anchor to that more in your day. So I give a lot of very practical, tangible tips of like, or tactics and, and exercises and things throughout the book that show here are different ways you can build presence into your life. Not all at once. You're not going to create, you know, wake up tomorrow and be a different person sure. and you shouldn't, shouldn't want it to be that way. Cause that's not real. Yeah. It's um, taking these little steps and making little changes every day over a long period of time. And then waking up in six months and being like, Oh, Holy shit. I changed my life through this, mm -hmm. you know? Right. Um, so the, there section then describes a lot of the ways that we get lost and pulled away from ourselves. You know, given that, technology has has evolved and just blown by our human biology the, the modern world has created all these new type of problems and that's one of the the things that makes the book quite different is that it addresses the issues and the things that we're facing today you know technological overwhelm uh social media phones internet the the uh disagreeable realities and all the stuff that are coming up from the modern world in causing the skyrocketing anxiety and depression and feelings of isolation and loneliness in the world. Um, talking about those things and, and how to recognize those and recognize when they're showing up in your life. And, and one of the things I describe is like the momentum of distraction, you know, like we get caught in this long reactive chain of distraction where there's so many things popping up, you know, in life, the complexity of life and society in general, also the complexity of how much data and input we're getting from the, our digital devices. Um, that, that just, overwhelms our senses, fragments our concentration, our focus. And then we, based upon our, our family programming, our past experience, our genetic inheritance, all of that stuff, we're basically just in this long, pro protracted, uh, reactive state. So there's one overwhelming thing that we react to without any consideration based upon our, our imprintations. And then we react to another thing, then react to another thing and react to another thing. And it becomes this pinball way of living as opposed to actually stopping, recognizing the flow of your life, what you're doing and being able to respond to it as opposed to just react. And once you cultivate that space through a lot of the, the, the tools and, and ideas and practices that I put in the book, you can then begin to choose how you show up in your life. And that's whenever you can begin authoring your future, you know? Um, so the here section, same situation with that, it describes uh, how to get back to the present moment and what it's like to get there, different ways that you can build into your life and create these positive reinforcement habits to stay present-minded, to stay linked into it and to polish the silver because very much like going to the gym, you know, if you do uh, 20 pull-ups, you're like, okay, I feel good. Well, you have to keep doing them, you know, what I mean? yeah, yeah, yeah. for the benefits to, to, uh, to keep working. And so, uh, it focuses on that. And, uh, another thing that makes it the, the book unique is that a lot of books on this topic, they're sort of designed for you to smile and feel good while you read them. But then the second you put them down, you just go back to your, your old life again, your old right. way of being. And I, I wanted to really break that and build this bridge from knowing to doing. So 
in the how section, uh, that's where it all kicks off into action. So it's two parts. Uh, one is 12 ways to now, and that's 12 guiding principles that will allow that if you insert these into your life, the things you can do, simple things that are all interconnected, but they will draw you back and bring that presence and that self-awareness into your life. Uh-huh. Um, th- then the second half is called on meditation, uh-huh. uh, which is kind of a shout out to Stephen King because in his book on writing, he doesn't go, it's not like a style book, you know, he doesn't go into the mechanics and all the nuts and bolts of the English language. Right. It is, uh, he talks about it so that you can actually step into the, the writer's seat yourself and start writing. Uh Um, And so I look at meditation as the same way. It's like, I think there's a lot more damage has been done than good by all of the books that have been out there that have this weird, hazy, like fluffy kind of jargon filled description of meditation. Um, and so what I do is give a crystal clear description of how you can start meditating extremely simply, like anyone can do it. You can stick to it and you can make it your own. So it's all, you know, sets one up to that. I cover all the bases because I put out the course, the online meditation course uh, released into now and then on it ended up licensing that, I got a lot of feedback from thousands of people that took the course. So I was able to really learn and understand what a lot of the universal questions or or troubles are that people find whenever they're trying to meditate. So I'm able to just lay all that stuff out and then set you know, a person, the reader up to dive into it themselves. Yeah, that's right. Because before you ever got into doing the, the actual book, you started this out as, um, <clears throat> as a course for on it. So there's yeah. been kind of a previous incarnation with this, with a different format. And now there's the book format. So that's pretty cool. That gives you experience also, yeah, as you say, to deal with the kind of questions that pop up, what are the recurrent themes and all of that. Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a very valuable uh, like information gathering position to be in. It was really just personally very like enlightening to hear these common questions that would have never have crossed my mind, like things that seem obvious to me or things I never really struggled with. I see that brought up to me. 50 times I'm like oh okay this is a real thing that like yeah people are people are dealing with so it's really cool and it it helped me just personally learn a lot more about st- stuff and understand my own ideas and, and what have you in a different way right absolutely so let's chat a little bit about the the distractions that you were dis- describing earlier you know the whole fact of uh, people having you know i mean we have always been the human mind is prone to distraction, period. So we can, there are 10,000 things that can catch up your attention and take you away from the present moment. But of course, currently, thanks to, thanks to new technologies, the potential for distraction has just skyrocketed. You know? So we are in a situation where, yeah, we do check our phones 55 times per second. We do check email every minute. There's Facebook. There's there are all these things that are calling for our attention and, you know, maybe because all this new technology happened so quickly, so there hasn't really been a time to adjust to it, maybe just because it's a difficult period, even if you had the time, but it seems that, yeah, definitely people tend to struggle with it a bit in the sense that uh, something that's also a great opportunity because, of course, you know, the fact that you can connect with people with just typing a few keys 
on your keyboard, that's amazing. The fact that you can communicate, you know, you are now hundreds of miles from me and we can record over these is amazing. You know, there are clearly some amazing things that new technologies have brought, but we really, like, they came without the instructional manual, you know, they came without <laughs> us being able to understand exactly how to incorporate them into our lives in a way that's healthy versus incorporate them into our lives in a way that's kind of cool in some way, but also terrible in others. Because, I mean, the mm -hmm. addiction to this stuff is extremely real. And, you know, I'm first on the list. I check my email like 50 times a day, probably. I, you know, it's so I guess part of the question there is, you know, uh, you're not advocating a Luddite, get rid of all technologies, never get a phone, uh, internet is the devil. That's not what you're saying. So what's, how do you go about it? How do you, what kind of practical boundaries do you set for being able to use these things without being just a tool in their hands? Yeah, I mean, in one of the points you brought up there about the the fact that evolution or that uh, technology evolves so quickly and that there's no instruction manual, uh, one of the quotes I put or one of the things I put in the book that uh, addresses that is that you know there are still human hunter gatherer tribes in the Amazon rainforest, while Amazon.com will deliver our groceries to our front door in two hours. Right. Yes. It's just, it's absurd. The amount of like disparity between biological and technological evolution. And so, uh, for example, one of the things I would, you know, I would say is like that recognizing that our brain is wired to get distracted, you know, like it's the default mode network is the most common state of our, of our brain state of our you know, neurological state. And that is a, one of scanning and processing and looking for fragments and pieces of things. And that was very useful, uh, you know, 10,000 years ago, whenever we were wandering around and we needed to be watching for threats constantly and be on guard. Now we don't really need that, mm -hmm. that as much. And so the issue is that something I call the evolutionary hangover in the book is like our ancient brain at war with our frontal brain amidst the complexity of modern society, you know, um, and so recognizing that is step one. I think that awareness is the key to any change because you have to understand what the issue is and why it's creating suffering before you can address it and start creating changes. Mm -hmm. And so that's one. Step two is as far as technology, something like your phone goes, your email, just like batching that time that you do it, like seeing how it treats you. And then putting it in the lab, like really doing it and watching how you feel differently emotionally, how your clarity changes. Um, so, for example, you could instead of checking your email 50 times a day, that becomes just an, a negative habit. It's like one of those chain momentum uh, reaction things I was talking about earlier where you get into the habit of just like refreshing, refreshing, because you're looking for that little dopamine hit over and over and hoping that there'll be something new. Mm -hmm. um, it's like the hedonic treadmill for your thumb. Of course. You know? totally. And um, I like that. And so, the hedonic treadmill for your thumb. That's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> and so whenever you uh, just start batching that, because like, what are you really getting done, right? You're just in a, in a craving state. Mm -hmm. And so you're looking to crave that. It's an addiction state. And so uh, one of the examples I put in the book about email mm -hmm. is that like, we all check our email a billion times a day, uh, but it doesn't seem that that dark because it came on so gradually, sure. you know, it's in it. And now there's a bunch of social 
contracts around it, which suggests that if you don't respond to an email within 24 hours, you're sending a message. If you don't respond in a couple of days, you're maybe you hate that person. So there's all like on both sides of the conversation, there's all this anxiety and social pressure to stay locked into our email. Mm -hmm. Um, But one of the examples I give is that if you were sitting in your uh, living room or front room in your house uh, on a Saturday and you saw your neighbor come down their driveway and check their their mailbox and go inside you'd be like, okay there's bill or yeah. whatever and then five minutes later bill comes out again walks down his driveway looks in his mailbox goes back inside and then again and then again and then five minutes later and five minutes later and then a few hours go by and you're like okay bill has come out of his house and walked down his driveway and looked in his mailbox 50 times a day like i think i need to call 911 at the very least i need to go ask him if he's all right that's like the sign of someone having a mental breakdown or something like that mm-hmm. so that seems funny right? right but that's what we're all doing every day yeah yeah and so i think to recognize the pattern that we're in and actually the circumstances and the real the real um kind of uh uh like what it's doing to us on a psychological level is important so looking at like examining what are we accomplishing through checking the email well nothing we're trying to meet a desire Uh so batching email time is is a really useful way to manage that so you can say okay from like 1 p.m you know it doesn't have to be set in stone but i'll i'll check my email for 30 minutes like in the morning, mm-hmm. I'll check it for 30 minutes in the afternoon and 30 minutes before I go to bed or whatever works sure, for sure, the person. Sure. Right. And what that does is is it ends up doing an interesting thing where you can, uh, one, you start to look forward to that time. And then you look and maybe you have 10 emails. And what surprises you is that you'll see, oh, it only took me five minutes to get rid of those those 10 emails. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't even need my whole 30 minute time that I was going to plan to to spend on this. And the same thing applies to social media, too, Right, is that I I didn't mention this in the book. But one of the things I don't think I did. One of the things I did with my social media was like, do you ever find yourself pulling up your phone and like you open your phone and then your thumb just clicks on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter without even thinking about it? And then you'll have that moment of like, oh, weird, I just pulled up my email or, or social media app, mm-hmm. you know, um, moving, I moved all my apps like social media and email apps to the back page of my phone and then actually put them in a folder too. So now in order to open up any of those apps, I have to swipe three pages, four pages over, open a folder and then get to those. So just kind of creating some barriers to entry as like training wheels to get you off the dopamine teat of, uh, you know, suckling right. dopamine from those things <laughs> yeah. is really useful because what's cool, man, is that after you break that, you, you have to really kind of detox from it a little bit. Um, and then recognizing the craving mind too, feeling that like, Ooh, I want to go do it. I want to go check in social media. I want to go check my email, recognizing that being able to, that's where mindfulness practice comes in, mm-hmm. recognizing the arising impulse and then being able to stop it and direct your attention elsewhere before you just find yourself waking up with, you know, looking at Instagram or something. Um, but once you do that, you, you recognize like, Oh, holy shit. After a week goes by your anxiety goes down. Right. It's crazy. And then, you know, another week goes by and you're like, oh, I feel like more contiguous Mm -hmm. in the way that I'm thinking and more clear minded. And then once you dip back into those things like your email or social media, it's actually, it 
it's really not pleasurable. You see it from more like kind of more of an alien point of view where it seems more bizarre than anything else. Right. No, that makes sense. And I think it's uh, what you bring up is an interesting point because we don't think of uh, these things like email or whatever the hell else or social media for that matter. I don't think of it as, come on, do I really need to set boundaries? Do I need to set the allow times for email and all of that? And the answer is probably yes. Yeah. You know, as silly as that may sound, that actually is because look at what the default is. You know, when you go back to default mode, or at least for me, and I'm imagining I'm not exactly alone in this, when it goes back to default mode, you're doing that all day. And anything you're doing, you're also doing that other thing at the same time, which inevitably leads to the fact that contrary to what you're trying to advocate in your book, you're never really present. You're always, right. Your attention is always diverted in like two, three or four directions at the same time. And you are never really in that one place. And it kind of robs you of life because you are... You know, you are so busy just kind of roaming around from one thing to another without ever fully being there. That is like everything lacks intensity because mm -hmm. you are, you know, the co that's why maybe psychedelics can be so powerful for some people because they put them right in that moment, right? Where the colors are brighter, where everything is more intense and there's more, the present moment looks more magical. Well, in some ways they can be redundant, if you're actually mm -hmm. present, you know what I mean? There are certain, like in, in that sense, they open a door that's not that is not available to most people is that it takes more work to get there. Mm -hmm. But it's not that, oh, psychedelics open this magical world that otherwise is completely shut, you are shut off from, is that you would have to do other things to take your consciousness to a certain place where you can be fully present in a situation where sitting in your garden may be the most magical and beautiful thing there is, you know? Mm -hmm. Absolutely, man. That's like my meditation these days. And, and granted, you know, I've been a steady meditator for 20 years now, but like my meditations are very psychedelic. I mean, they're highly visionary and visual. And um, after about the first five minutes, my mind's eye just kicks on to full on psychedelic visionary mode right. and it's a very useful state and it, it did take a lot of practice and and what have you to get there and maybe you know i think from person to person the visual element of meditation kind of varies but for me it's a very useful state because that's that state where i can <clears throat> i can extract the information you know, our brains are weird is that they're often just trying to tell themselves things or trying to get them to realize shit on their you know what i mean uh -huh. which is such a if you look at that from the outside it's so fucking weird that like th most of our lives is our brains trying to get itself to understand something right. right so during meditation in that that those moments being able to have some access to the arising subconscious fragments that peak up above the membrane of my conscious mind and to glean those insights and those intuitive, you know, fullness moments uh, of things that my brain is trying to tell me are incredibly useful. You know, one of the things I mentioned in the book is that like uh, meditation is easy. You do it every night while you sleep. I'm just going to show you how to do this while you're right. awake. So you're doing the same thing, but having your conscious mind to understand and to be able to deconstruct and, and see those things as they flow through, becomes uh, incredibly valuable. And in that sense, 
let me ask uh, kind of the dumb question why do it you know what if you are already you know you go out and take a nap you go out and sleep why does your brain need to go through a relatively similar process while you are awake because you need agency to do the uh, the insight aspect of it mm -hmm. okay so you yeah yeah so having the 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 dreaming element is you know if you're sleeping uh you know, one of the things I put in there is like breathe like you're sleeping during meditation. Mm -hmm. Everyone gets all worked up and tight around the idea of like how they should breathe in meditation. I'm like, you do it for eight hours a day. Right. Like just you breathe calmly, slowly and relaxed. But the reason you can do that is because your conscious agency is not engaged in that moment. So there's no resistance. There's no clinging and grasping to the idea, the intellectual aspect of of sitting and breathing. Um and so when you're awake and you're in that state and th through a very small amount of practice, you can begin to relax and let go and release the fidgetiness that has been habituated through always fiddling with your phone or fooling with the remote or doing something or other or a keyboard and um, have that same mental subconscious arising, but have the agency of your consciousness aware to observe it. And that's whenever the integration between the subconscious and the conscious mind actually happens and is possible. And that's where insights come from. Speaking of breathing, what, um, have you ever looked the mat? I mean, you've heard, uh, I'm sure a lot in the last few years, post uh, Joe Rogan experience visit, post uh, visit with Aubrey, with, you know, a million other people. Wim Hof became really popular. And one of the things he mm -hmm. does is that even though his approach is a bit different, he, his emphasis is heavily on breathing. So you can kind of see his stuff as a, I guess, his peculiar form of meditation with a strong emphasis on breathing. Did you ever experiment much with his stuff? Yeah, I, I did like way back in, uh, I don't know, like in the, not, not Wim Hof stuff, but, you know, the stuff that he's doing is pretty old right you know um been around for a long time and there's a lot of like uh sufi breathing techniques that the sufi mystics would do and various things like that or just essentially a lot of what he's doing is pranayama breathing uh -huh. you know um and so yes i did a lot of that in my early 20s to great effect you know and i think that why that was beneficial to me anyway was and he added the ice element to it, which I think that's what really set it off right. and, and makes it something unique. Um, but to me, it was resetting the nervous system, trying to work through, get that anxiety, you know, because anxiety truly is trapped in our nerves and our muscles. You think about like um, like an animal, whenever an animal experiences something, uh, not that we're not animals, sure. but and whenever a wild animal yeah. experiences something that is quote unquote traumatic or a, a dose of fear or anxiety goes through their body, they have that, that tuck drop or, or whatever response to it. So they can, they work out that physiological response by attacking, by dropping, by screaming, by whatever it is. And so that isn't stored in the nervous system, but humans, we don't have that because we're quote unquote civilized critters. Whenever we experience trauma or anxiety or fear or an attack or something, all that shit just gets woven right into our nervous system. And so for me, the pranayamic breathing was very useful because it was able to discharge a lot of that stuff. And I think that that's why a lot of people are finding it helped with their, with their depression and with their, their anxiousness is because not only are they 
are they getting the the awareness and that that dose of like kind of instant presence that doing breath work like that can give uh-huh. you um they're also able to discharge the you know, what's stored up in their nervous system and then the cold water of course has its own beneficial effects too. yeah that makes sense that makes sense so is that something that you would um, suggest people to mess with and play with a little or is that like as a far because i know you know you're very eclectic with your methodologies is that something that you know for certain people you'd think or you feel like eh, not quite my thing well i do i rinse off in cold water after every shower right. uh if, if that's an endorsement just you know I take a hot shower by end it with a cold right you know 10 20 seconds um mainly because it just uh, makes me wake up and feel invigorated yeah. and you feel that interesting. And I, I learned how to be, befriend cold water in the Amazon, oddly enough, because <laughs> whenever I was down there with Aubrey and, and uh, others, they didn't have, you know, they don't have the, at the time, you know, where we were at, we were at the old school type of place and they didn't have, uh, yeah. you know, they don't have a hot water heater. They have like rainwater that's collected and there's a spigot that you go under, you just open it and there you go. There's ice cold right. rainwater. That's your shower. <laughs> and, and I remember at the time being like, how the fuck am I going to do this, man? Yeah. And uh, I turned it on and I just had to put one arm in. I took it out. I was like, okay, put the other arm in, take it out. All right, put a leg in, another leg. And like, okay, here we go. <laughs> yeah, no, that's uh, these days I'm uh, unwillingly experimenting because my hot water at home is gone. So, yes, it's, uh, but you know, it's still also the end of summer. So it's not such a bad experiment. I'm guessing that yeah. I probably should fix that before winter hits. Yeah, definitely. Um, but one thing I will say is that you, you know, it is wise to be careful if anyone like has been thinking about trying the Wim Hof method, because what a lot of people do is they do the breathing technique while they're in the shower, and essentially the breathing technique oh, no, no. is you know yeah, it's that's terrible hyperventilating. Idea. Yeah, no, you can pass out yeah. like that. Definitely. Exactly. So a lot of broken teeth I've heard about of people passing out in the shower. So trying that, you know, the cold water thing is useful. But if you're going to do the breath, either sit down or don't do it in the shower. Right, right, right. Do it before, and then you can go in the shower. Yeah. But not exactly. if you feel stable enough, but not at the moment. Yeah, I remember when Wim Hof first came out, he was like describing his breathing technique on the Rogan's podcast. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, so I start messing with it, and I nearly crash because I'm driving. And then he goes like, oh, by the way, probably you don't want to do that if you're driving. And I'm like, thanks. That's really useful advice after the fact. It turns out he's like, he works for big like insurance right. and big pharma. Exactly. And he's, <laughs> they're like, let's insert this you know peculiar, peculiar Dutch guy or wherever he's yeah. from. Uh, to, in, into the ecosystem of podcast worlds and with some old technique that's, you know, most people or that's been around for a while and will get people in the car crash. <laughs> that, that's what it's works. all about. I see. Good, good, yeah. good point. The, cool, man. Anything else you want to add uh, either about the book, the your podcast, anything? Or... Man, mainly just, uh, just thank you so much for um, – always from the moment we met always being so awesome and being just a a real uh just wonderful anchor of authenticity and doing your own thing doing everything in my opinion you know doing it the right way and being a a, a good person that is out there uh, you know making the world better and always being so incredibly kind and generous and um 
willing to do everything you can, you know, for me with any of my projects or anything before even asking. So just thank you so much for that. And, uh, you, uh, you are a special guy, man. And, and, uh, it's a pleasure to know you. Well, as, uh, so for you guys, now, you know, why, uh, Corey is a genius judge of character and this investment <laughs> of reality is always spot on. Now you had a perfect example of that because you know, <laughs> crystal clear, crystal clear. Yes. <laughs> well, thank you, my man. So of course, for everybody, the book by the time we release this will be out on Amazon in bookstores. If you can still find one called Now is the Way by Mr. Corey Allen. And also, Corey has a podcast, uh, The Astral Hustle. And so check that one out too. That one is uh, like most podcasts, except for History of Fire, is a freebie. And you can access it <laughs> on all the good channels where you download podcasts. So that's the gig. Cool, my man. Thank you so much. And for everybody, you guys have a wonderful day. music means one thing and that is the end of another fine episode of the drunken Dows podcast I want to let you know that Corey allen's book now is the way is now available everywhere in every form i think you can even have it telecap telepathically beamed into your brain now bookstores amazon wherever you like and be sure if you're going to buy it on amazon please click through our amazon link wrap this up and get out of the way but i want to mention kiva.org Team Drunken Dallas has 219 of your fellow listeners as members who have loaned an amazing $133,000 over the past four years. Please come join us. Lend, get paid back, repeat. The thing to really keep in mind is that it is a loan, not a donation. You get paid back the money, and then you can lend it again. There's so many categories to lend to. Agriculture, arts, education, livestock, a ton of others. $1.4 billion in loans to 78 different countries, including the United States. Please come join us. We would love to have you check it out. And as I've been saying for years, the Kiva cards that are available are an excellent torturous gift for those nieces and nephews that might need to learn some lessons about being good to other people. And they can lend the money, and when the money comes back, they can cash it out themselves, but hopefully a lot of them will want to lend it out again. So that's a possibility as we start to step into the holiday seasons that'll be here before we know it. Finally, I've got to say thanks to our pals of the band Daisy House, providers of our incredible theme song. Check out all of their eclectic music at daisyhouse.bandcamp.com. They have five full records of material going back... I guess 2013 was the first one. They've been doing it for a while. Go have a listen, find yourself a track you'd like, and drop them a couple of bucks to thank them for providing that awesome music and to help out the folks who help us, which isn't that what it's all about. So as we head out the door, check out onit.com, sure design t-shirts, and be sure to go through our Amazon link if you happen to be buying something. Man, that's it. We'll be back with a fresh Rich and Bolelli episode starting year eight. Incredible how quickly it's gone by, but we have a great time doing it. And we look forward to doing eight more if it's possible. We've got some great reviews on iTunes lately, and we really appreciate it. And for the folks that are sick of Rich, you know what? I produce this thing too, so I think I'll be around for a little bit longer. Hopefully, unless something terrible happens. And let's not hope for that. Quit the hate, spread the love, and we'll see you in year eight in a couple of weeks. Bye. <laughs>
and so ends another awesome episode of the Drunken Dows Podcast. Be sure to keep your ears peeled for another mind-expanding episode coming soon. We'll be tweeting you as they come out. You can keep track of Daniele at dbolelli. That's D-B-O-L-E-L-L-I. And you can find me on Twitter at Richimon1. R-I-C-H-I-M-O-N and the numeral one. We'll see you all soon. Woo! In questo cazzo, in questo caso le provvidenze di Dio. Duncan showed you the way, eh? Oh man, isn't that scary to think? Nice. So don't kill people, do that instead. <laughs> this was great, fucking awesome. And I love this conversation. I have nothing against chicken other than the fact that they are ugly and weird and strange. We've been yeah, having a great hour nice. here. Dun, dun, dun. Completely got lost. Are we doing the outro or the intro? We're right? outro. Oh, we're outro. Okay, sorry. So that's so. Let's continue. Did you ever see the movie Tombstone with uh, Val Kilmer and uh, uh, your accent? It just whatever that movie is you were trying to tell can me. Can you about. translate for me, please? I believe the word was tombstone. Yeah, that one exactly. <laughs> just as I was saying, you know, Tombstone. <laughs> now, most everybody thought. <coughs> sorry. Well. <coughs> We'll do a cut on there. Or not. That was something else. <laughs> That's maybe too powerful. <laughs> what do I have to do? One day the rod shall teach you. Get back to work. Funky. Podcasting. It's like radio, but you can cuss. Wow.